0: Good evening to you all. Tonight I wanted to talk about faith. And I'll start by grounding faith within the context of traditional teachings and talk about the five spiritual faculties. So these five faculties are... Powers or ability of mind that are developed or unveiled in the process of spiritual development, but which also are part of the manifestation of the awakened mind. So there's five of them. The first of which is faith, also known as sadha the others being effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And these are all things that you see reflected on various other lists. There's a lot of overlap with the lists of the factors of enlightenment and various other uh, ways that the Buddha slices and dices his teaching. But I really wanted to focus on faith. This word is... got a resonance for many modern people. And in many cases, it's not a particularly positive one. So I wanted to investigate what the Buddha means when he's talking about faith. But I think I'll start first by talking about some of the more familiar versions of faith that we may associate with this word. So, there are a number of different ways to do this and I kind of came up with my own system of thinking about this. So the first kind of faith to consider is one that's kind of uh, naive and innocent. So this is a kind of childlike state where there's a lack of skepticism and analytical thinking. And it's very trusting because the being doesn't yet have any inclination to really question whether something could be wrong, any reason to examine the current understanding. It's kind of naive. But there's a a simplicity here with things taken in uh, easily, and in an open hearted way. And it's Belief that's easily shaped and maintained when the mind is in the kind of state where it can accept belief on very simple terms. And now there's no wisdom in this state because there's no investigation. And this kind of faith relies on the mind not noticing too much So no questions arise. So an example of this is illustrated in a story a friend of mine once told me. And she said that when she was a child, she had a strong belief in Santa Claus, that he was really a major psychological comfort figure And she just loved Christmas, and and she loved Santa. And he represented everything that was good in the world to her. And she said at a certain point in her life, it was getting close to Christmas, and she was getting very excited. And um, she was talking to her father about, you know, the goings-on and what she hoped to receive under the tree. And he turned to her and he said, with a knowing smile, what do you think I am? Santa Claus? And she said at that moment, she realized he was telling her something and that there probably wasn't a Santa Claus. And when she told me this, I, I said, Well, yeah, that sounds really normal. You know, it's really normal for you know, kids to think there might be a Santa Claus or an Easter Bunny or Father Christmas or however... You know, you might might call it. And she said, Yeah, but I was ten. <laughs> okay. So that's the uh, naive and innocent version of faith. Then there's another version that you might call creedal or fundamentalism. And this is where Faith is made identical with holding specific fixed beliefs and doing mandated kinds of actions. So these beliefs are usually contained in a holy book uh, and or they're recited in particular statements of faith that uh, have an unchanging text and very specific meaning. So here there's a strong reliance on authority often a founding male who's had a direct conversation with a deity figure. (laughs) And he's gotten the download. So there's a special reception of spiritual information and understanding in this interchange, and it's understood to be literally the word of God. So this literalism usually extends into the sacred texts as well along with claims, for instance, that there, there's probably a sole lineage holder who who gets to say what they mean. And truth claims here that are from other bodies of knowledge, say biology or psychology or archaeology, etc., are seen to be uh, extraneous or beside the point uh, and in error if they suggest that the texts aren't literally true. So this framework of understanding is a closed and rigid one. And this is also a low investigation or no investigation kind of faith. And in fact, in this kind of system, it's a threatening thing to investigate because it can lead to a departure from um, the saving orthodoxy and this departure is often known as by names like heresy and apostasy and blasphemy and you know it can have these kinds of rigid views can have a very strong hold on people because the stakes that are there for questioning them are can be very high you know in the uh former times it would not be unusual to get you in trouble with you know, an organization like the Inquisition or whatever the parallel is. And in some places in the world, uh, it's still kind of like that. But it can also get you in trouble in other ways because you can uh, be risking, of course, eternal damnation, uh, being shunned and uh, losing any sense of safety and meaning in the world. I had uh, an example uh, of this come up in my own life when I was maybe 13 or 14 years old. And uh, I was raised in a a particular uh, branch of Christianity that wasn't particularly Bible-oriented so much, uh, especially in relationship to the Old Testament. And I had a fit of uh, zeal and I decided that I would go to the Bible and I would read it from the beginning to the end. And I thought, this will be great, you know, it's going right to, right to the source and I'm going to, you know, get to learn more about God and uh, his love. And, and so I can remember getting the Bible... And you know, starting to read, okay, it's a little dry there's a lot of, a lot of names and then then I got into the um got into the smiting <laughs> and the uh, brain dashing and the burning and pillaging and destroy even the children and I was like, oh." a major case of cognitive dissonance. Like how how does this line up with what I've been taught about God being all good and all loving and you know incredibly benevolent and but this is the Bible and this is what it says and whoa. Well if I if I question this, if I look at this if i well if i if I believe this, then God is bad, because even a good person wouldn't do this, even a person wouldn't do this, let alone God. So if I believe this, then God is bad. but if I don't believe this, I could go to hell, and then the thought. Well, who, who am I to question this? You know, some little 13-year-old girl. Who am I to question this? And you're not supposed to question this. And then the thought... Yeah, but didn't they say that God was truth? Wasn't that a big thing they said about God, is that He's truth? And the way my mind kind of held it, well, if God is truth, then he'll understand that I'm trying to find out the truth and I just shut it up. But that was the beginning of my departure from orthodoxy uh, in my own um, native religion. And when people have a lot of reaction to the word faith, very often they're talking about that particular version There's another way that we use the word faith now, which is something that I call uh, functional faith. and It's also been called spiritual materialism. And this is kind of a utilitarian view where the individual... Maintains their existing preferences, worldviews, and understandings, and supplements these with the more attractive parts of the Dharma. <laughs> so, this faith is that the basic view is probably okay, and that it just needs accessories. So there's a certain kind of consumerism with this where specific methods that are contained in the Eightfold Path are adopted and practiced in isolation from the other elements of the teachings. So in, in a sense, you could say, uh, the Buddhist teachings are kind of parted out. You know that word? I remember living in uh, a bad neighborhood once and I had an apartment like on the third or fourth floor and a little bit of a view across the street. And I started to notice, you know, somebody over there seemed to be running an auto body shop. You know, like they would drive cars in and then these very hardworking young men would like be all over those cars. <laughs> they'd be working on them and pretty soon they'd be... And after watching this for a few weeks, I started to realize, oh, geez, it's a chop shop. (laughs) They're like stolen cars and they're cutting them up and taking the parts and ill-gotten gains. But anyway, this is the parting out of the the Buddhist teachings where the practitioner likes to get to the juicy bits but's really not interested or, or tolerant of the difficult and renunciate parts. So very often there's no preliminary practices done uh, in relationship to this kind of faith. So the the earlier parts, the teachings related to generosity, the the practice of generosity, the teachings related to sila, the practice of of sila isn't part of the, the deal. The orientation is really to meditation and specifically to meditation for identifiable results. And a hallmark of this style is that the personal worldview and the current understanding is really not submitted to or consciously known in the meditative process itself. So it remains behind or outside of what's going on in the cushion and it isn't examined. So there's often not a lot of investigation of suffering here, but rather there's the immediate intention to get rid of it and the practice is steered in the direction uh, of that agenda. So the mind is pretty closed in terms of the big picture of things and it doesn't necessarily even know that it has a view, let alone does it entertain the possibility that, yeah, there is a view and maybe it's diluted. So Trungpa, of course, wrote the classic book on this uh, called Spiritual Materialism, which can be defined as using spiritual technologies to enhance the existing self-sense and to obtain upgraded experiences. And, and frequently, the sermon to the Kalamas is kind of quoted uh, in a very uh, abridged fashion. You know, do not believe what teachers say, do not believe what, without it being fully framed. Has anybody uh, heard the expression lily dipping? I learned this word when I was in uh British Columbia on a ocean kayaking trip, and the guide you know you're in the ca- kayak and you've got the got the paddle, so there's a certain amount of you know focus required and he he said to t- said to somebody, uh, you're lily dipping you're just lily dipping, <clears throat> which translated seemed to mean. Yeah, you've got, the, you've got the paddle, it's going in the water, but there's something about what's going on that's like not going anyplace. You yeah, know, there's kind of following of some kind of form, but it's like, <clears throat> it's not grabbing hold. So let's turn now to the, the Buddhist context and the, the Buddhist understanding of things. So we'll start with the initial point that the Buddha wanted to know the truth above all. So he was really uh, oriented to liberating truth and was willing to submit everything to the test of whether it led to the end of suffering. And if you know anything about his biography, you realize he did some pretty extreme experimentation So you could say he was a radical kind of empiricist with a very powerful altruistic motivation. He relied on direct observation experimentation to come to his own understanding about how suffering could be ended and then expressed that understanding in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So if we're going to frame what we actually do in the course of practice, we would say we're essentially being walked through a compressed and guided version of the same process that the Buddha undertook to come to his own awakening. So he wrote down what was significant in retrospect about what he did and turned it into a a descriptor of what must be done. So he himself had to figure it out from scratch. But we, however, are offered the orienting principles and instructions on how to proceed with our own experimentation. And these are all encoded within the path description and within the practices that the Buddha taught. So an image for this from an early science class you may have taken is, can you remember having the Bunsen burner out? And the teacher was trying to teach some simple lesson about compounds and how they You know, if you apply heat to them, they'll do something else. And anyway, my science memory was not that great, but you know, they turn the Bunsen burner on and heat something up. And then I don't know, vapor would be released or something. And then you'd weigh it and it'd be different, or you'd test it and it'd be a different metal or something or chemical than it was before you gave it the treatment. So experimentation. And the Buddha is a little bit like that in how he describes how to proceed, right? He says, okay, now go over here and do this. And, you know, cultivate these things and then look at this and look at this this way. And then sit down and notice this thing and orient your mind to this. And then see what happens. See, see how it goes. See where it goes. So if we we're talking about faith within this context, and how this all ties together, we'd have to say that faith within the Buddhist context is a multidimensional commitment to the process of examining truth claims. So in this sense, you could say the word faith's definition is the capacity for this kind of investigation, the undertaking of this kind of process. In fact, instead of it being uh, a noun, you might say faith is actually kind of more like a verb. Maybe it should be called faithing. Faithing. So the words used to convey this capacity to have confidence to proceed with investigation. That's the first point. And some, one of the commentaries gives an image for this, and they say, well, faith is like a strong and vigorous person who's standing on the bank of a raging stream and knows, you know, needs to cross to the other side and has the confidence to, to plunge in and do that uh, in a way that encourages the, the weaker people uh, behind him or her to make the same kind of crossing. So there's confidence to proceed with investigation. So investigation in this uh, context, Dhamma Vichaya, uh, is the process of examining the Dharma's truth claims. Now there's a very important piece to frame here, which is there's an assumption you want to know the truth, that you want to know the truth. And there needs to be some tentative trust that investigation will clarify delusion. That there's a possibility things could clear up by undertaking this process. Another element this kind of faith has is heart. In other words, there's a fullness of commitment to this process process and its undertaking. This sadha faith is very a lot uh, aligned with the second of the spiritual faculties uh, effort uh, or virya, which is a kind of courageous energy that's not deterred by difficulty. The next thing that's needed is surrender. Surrender in the sense that we agree that everything is going to go into the investigation. All of the five rivers. Everything is going to be included. The body, the mind, the emotions, the views. These are all part of the field of practice that are going to be tested against the truth claims of Buddha Dharma. And this can be really a challenging thing because we're basically saying that we're on board for a process that's open-ended and we know where it claims to go. But we don't know exactly what that means, or how that happens. We have a broad outline, a broad description of it. But we haven't walked it yet. We haven't done it yet. But we're willing to say, Okay, everything is in there. I'll put put everything in there. Commit to a process of moving to an unrealized and not fully understood outcome. Whoa. And you can see, by by the way I just described that, why that is significantly different from what I described as spiritual materialism. Which is where... You're running the process to serve what you want. And here, the process is processing you. So there's a willingness here to have deep dimensions of being reshaped and realigned towards truth. And everything is up for revision and re-understanding, including the entire view of what and how things are and how they operate. And the entire view of what we are and how we operate. So I was on retreat once and was kind of grappling with some of the issues around this, around the open endedness of things. And the mind came up with a little aphorism, is that the word for it? A little pith saying that I used to say before every sitting that reflected my willingness to just put it all in there and in the Dharma blender and see what happened when I hit the high button. (laughs) And the the slogan was, May I let go of all holdings, patterns, and beliefs which keep me separate from how things really are. Which is another way of saying, Okay, I'm up for the the delusion cleanup. So in terms of what kind of faith is needed, one of the really lovely things about this teaching is, you don't need to jump all the way to the everything in the Dharma blender right at the beginning. The whole method allows you to test, step by step, relying upon your own direct observation of what happens when you do what. So the kind of faith that's needed to begin this process is really enough to begin, provisionally, the exploration and practice of the path. And this faith needs to be developed along the way in conjunction with the other five spiritual faculties. And especially, it needs to be balanced with wisdom or discernment. So if we're going to say, well, faith in what? We could look at that within the context of the, <laughs> the refuges. We could say we need faith in the Buddha in that we're willing to think there's a possibility of the awakened mind. And we have a commitment to seek its arising with sincerity. We could say we have faith in the Dhamma We're willing to entertain it's a realistic possibility that the Buddha's description of reality is correct. And we're willing to proceed with the investigation of this claim with diligence. With the Sangha, we're willing to have a tentative acceptance that the teachers and community of practitioners are Knowledgeable and trustworthy guides and companions on the path. So we can start in a very tentative way to develop this capacity for faithing, this kind of courage uh, of mind and kind of trust. So there's a couple of other personal elements related to faith that are also necessary in order to do this. So individually, we need to have enough confidence and trust in ourself so that the risk of exploration can be tolerated. We need to have enough Confidence that we can take care of ourselves, that we could survive a revision of understanding or uh, the loss of an illusion and, or a deluded way of understanding things and still be okay. So if you need complete rigidity and can't tolerate that liminal space, And need to work around the generation of uh, courage. And related to that, of course, is the faith in ourselves that we're good enough. That we're good enough, that we actually have the potential to do this. And it can be really useful if this is a place where the mind tends to waver to consider doing some practices that really help us tap into a recognition of our strengths of heart and character. So that could include things like uh, reflecting on the wholesome qualities that are present in the mind or remembering particular good things that that we've done, things that have been wholesome, wholesome actions. So we begin to brighten the mind and move the mind in the direction of feeling that it has the right to undertake this journey, that there's no barrier or impediment there to its capacity to practice and ultimately to open to what's true. And we start by finding that these smaller manifestations of uh, goodness in ourselves, whether we think of them as seeds or whether we think of them as light shining through doubt and other obscurations, however we hold it, we can start by finding uh, the beginning goodness, the goodness that we can already see and, and rest with. So this path of faith is not about accepting something from uh, ancient times or something that's been presented in spoon-like fashion. It's not about relying on authority that you can't verify through your own direct experience. It's not about taking somebody else's word for it. It's not about trying to use the the Dharma to help fill in the the holes in your heart and mind. It's not spackle. (laughs) It's much more than that. So it's more about uh, developing the direction of having uh, the confidence to let down the walls entirely. The walls of self-confinement and misidentification with in particular, the more painful uh, arisings of the body and mind. And opening to the fuller field of experience that opens in turn to a completely open space of non-resistance. So What I would wish for you all then is that you may find the beginning seeds of faith that supports your walking of the past step by step and realize that you have within you the capacity to undertake this journey and you have the right to practice in the lineage of ones who have gone before and have found the freedom that you seek. So let's sit for a minute.